0: Every one of us and indeed everyone who is alive and in fact, everyone who has ever lived will one day have to answer these three questions. Who am I? Who is God? And do I know the difference? Every person in every culture has to make a choice about God. We make our choices, and then our choices, they make us. That's true even for famous people, like Morgan Freeman. In a series of 2011 and 2012 interviews, the iconic Morgan Freeman raised people's eyebrows when he said he considers Himself God. The questions were in response to a scientific series that he did on television. A series that dealt with material and philosophical questions about the universe. He was asked specifically about God's existence. He said, yes, there is a God. And we have made him. And we made him in our image. Asked in an earlier interview if he was a God-fearing man, Freeman answered, no, I don't fear anything, for I am God. I would suggest to you today that once we make the decision to place ourselves in the place of God, we might as well say the handwriting is on the wall. And that's the topic of today's message from Daniel chapter 5. As you find your place in God's word, I want to encourage you to take out your scriptures, your electronic text, so that God can speak to you. His word is alive. It's relevant for our society today. I believe he has a message for this moment. Let me remind you where we've been. Daniel chapter 1 records that a man named Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took over Jerusalem. He did this in three phases. In the first phase, he went to Jerusalem and kidnapped some young nobility. Among those were four young men we began to know as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When we're introduced to them in Daniel chapter 1, they're 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, somewhere in that range. In Daniel chapter 2, we see that God has blessed Daniel and he's given a place of prominence, even in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian kingdom. And in that place of prominence, he's called upon to interpret a dream of Nebuchadnezzar. When he does that, God blesses him even in a greater way. In Daniel chapter three, we meet up with Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They would not bow. And as a result, they were thrown into a fiery furnace. Last week, we learned the important lessons that we should learn from these three men. We learned that we should not fall down. We should not freak out. We should not lose faith, no matter the circumstance of life. In Daniel chapter 4, we see a close-up look at Nebuchadnezzar's life. It seems that between Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 3, he had begun to contemplate who God was. But as is often the case, when surrounded by all the trappings of this world, it's very difficult to recognize that you need God. And so caught up in his pride, Daniel chapter 4 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar eventually went crazy. He ran around for a year like a crazy man before eventually humbling himself, and I believe professing his faith in Yahweh, becoming a God-fearing person. And then, according to history and scripture, Nebuchadnezzar dies. By the time we get to Daniel chapter 5, it would appear that it's his grandson, a king by the name of Belshazzar, that has taken charge of the kingdom. And he, like his grandfather, in scripture referred to as a father, he is caught up in the pride of the moment. And as king of Babylon, he decides to make it all about himself. Something, by the way, that every one of us are tempted to do. Let's catch up with what's taking place in Daniel chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of the thousand. Now, I just want to pause there and say, right there we know that something's a little different than normality. We've learned in the Proverbs that a king is not going to be given too much wine because for leaders it's known that that causes them to lose their judgment. We know from history that kings would not have been drinking and partying in front of other people. And so this is already a strange moment. Verse 2, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought and that the king and the lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and the lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. And they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone." Now, in case you can't understand it, I wanna help you grasp what's taking place here. Historians and theologians believe this was a night of partying, but not just any partying. It was a night of sex, it was a night of sin, and it was a night of sacrilege. Because in addition to the drunkenness that was taking place, most believe this was a setting that would create an orgy And in addition to all of that, the king decided to go into the plunder that his perhaps grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from Jerusalem, from the temple. And in a moment of sacrilege, he chose to profane the sacred things of God. What I'm trying to tell you is this was a mess. I'm going to ask you three questions. The first is this. Do you see the mess that's been made? Belshazzar's not just sinning. We all do that. He's also thumbing his nose at God. It's as if he's saying, I don't care. Even today, when we think about the return of Christ, did you know that there are people who are preparing those elements Of worship from the original temple to be just like the biblical outline of those elements so that when Jesus returns, the temple is ready. This was a big deal. It would be like someone coming in when we celebrate communion. And even though we don't look in a ritualistic ways to these containers having special, sacred meaning to us. It would be like someone coming uh, to a communion table, taking the cup from which we would drink the juice to remember the blood of Christ, dumping out the juice and filling it with whiskey, sitting on the table and just saying, bring it on. Let's have a party. That was the moment, a moment of sacrilege. I want you to think for a second, what causes this? What prevents us from doing the same thing? I think we all struggle with something that is at the root of this problem. It's a problem called pride. Listen to what C.S. Lewis describes as the great sin. He says, there's one vice in which no man in the world is free, which everyone loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drinks or even that they're cowards. And yet I do not think I've ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. At the same time, I very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others there's no fault that makes a man more unpopular no fault with which we're more unconscious of a, in ourselves. and the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others the vice i'm talking about is pride he says our self-conceit it's getting to the point where we live as if the world revolves around us and no one else matters i know who i am I'm the God of my universe. I control my fate. It's a dangerous place to be, but we all can get there. What are some ways that you put yourself before God? What are some ways that you profane the sacred things? You need some help? The Bible tells us in Galatians 5 that those who are filled with the Spirit of God are characterized by something called the fruit of the Spirit. It lists nine attributes. Let me just give you a few. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. You get the drift? If you're not characterized by those things in your life, by definition, you're profaning the sacred. Scripture teaches that everything we have is given to us by God. We are to be stewards. It even tells us how we're to be stewards. We're to start by just acknowledging out of the first fruits, that first income that comes our way, that we give back to God. When we don't do that, according to Scripture, by definition, we are profaning the things of God. Jesus said the most important thing we could do is love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then close behind it, he would say, love your neighbor as yourself. When we don't love God passionately and we don't love others intentionally, when we don't let love fill our lives, we are by definition profaning the sacred things of God. Hi, I'm Paul Purvis, the lead pastor of Mission Hill Church right here in Tampa Bay. Thanks for taking the time to listen to today's The Barnabas Effect. It's a ministry intended to encourage, equip, and empower you. You may not know this, but this ministry is made possible because of the generosity of listeners like you. We continue with our message. And then Jesus would give us in his last words before ascending into heaven. Go into all the world and as you go, preach the gospel, teaching them and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go all over the world and do this. We call that the Great Commission. If I'm not a witness as a professing Christ follower, if I don't tell others about what I say Christ has done for me, by the very definition, we're profaning the sacred things of God. So think about this, guys, before we point our fingers at King Belshazzar about how foolish he was, how he was thumbing his nose at God. We may need to look in the mirror. So I want to ask you again, do you see the mess that's been made? You need to understand when we fail to take seriously the things that God deems sacred, we make a mess of our lives and we position ourselves for a world of hurt. And some of us are making a real mess. And there's always going to be consequences. We see that in verse 5. Notice what it says as the story continues. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite a lampstand. Now, I just need to stop right there because I don't want you to miss what's taking place. Imagine a human hand appearing out of nowhere. Not a body, not an arm, just a hand. And that hand, I'm going to assume it's left-handed because... It's us left-handed people who are in our right mind, and that left hand is writing on the wall. You've just been in a drunken stupor. Can you imagine the people at that party? Uh, Hey, Martha, do you see what I see? I mean, is is that really happening? They thought they were hallucinating. All of them thought, wow, we have got to put the drink down. Things have gotten out of hand. And the king was especially frightened. Notice what happens. Then the king saw the hand as it wrote. And the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked. It says he lost color, his his face became flushed. The inside, it's like he got a pit in his stomach. Some commentators literally believe that it says in the original language, it's talking about his insides were loosened. You know what I'm saying? Some people believe he was so scared he peed his pants right there or his robe or whatever he was wearing. He was scared. And the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around their neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, just imagine that. That sounds familiar, right? It sounds like King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. When he didn't know what he dreamed and he didn't know the interpretation of what he dreamed, he called all these same people together and said, somebody tell me what's going on. And so now his grandson, King Belshazzar, does the same thing. Can anybody help the king? Can anybody tell me where this hand came from? And what does that message mean? Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known the king's interpretation. And so then the king Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His color changed again and his lords were perplexed. That was a sobering moment. In fact, the king sobered up the quickest in history. He went from this drunken party to seeing that hand to saying, Houston, we've got a problem. He realized the seriousness of the situation. I think he began to know that he had made a mess. You see, when you profane the things of God and you know that as he knew that, you're not really surprised when you begin to see the consequences around you. What's surprising is that knowing we will have consequences, we still step out and do foolish things. So just in case you're struggling remembering this truth today, let me just remind you, sin always takes you further than you want to go. It always keeps you longer than you want to stay. And it always costs you more than you want to pay. Sin always has consequences. Yes, we preach about God's grace. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for your forgiveness. But don't think for a moment that God's grace and the forgiveness made possible by Jesus on the cross of Calvary takes away the reality of consequence for our sinfulness. As a pastor, I regularly meet with people who've taken step to be forgiven and made right with others and with God. And yet sometimes even decades later, they're living with the consequences of their sinfulness. Yeah, I believe this king was looking around and saying, I've made a mess. What am I going to do? And it's at that point that a familiar face arrives on the scene. Well, he's not going to be familiar just to look at anymore. Because when we last left Daniel, we met him in chapter one. He was a young teenager. By chapter two, he's about 30 years old. When he shows up on the scene in chapter five, we think he's between 70 and 80 years old. After Nebuchadnezzar died, he's pushed away. Because the new kings, they don't really have any need for Daniel. That was Nebuchadnezzar's guy. notice what happens. Verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords came into the banqueting hall. Now we think theologically, this is probably the queen mother. This may have been Nebuchadnezzar's wife or may have been uh, the the daughter. uh, And and she's speaking to her son, uh, who was the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar. And she says this, "O king live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man, I don't want you to miss that, that phrase. There is a man. You see, when we get to the end of our time together, where I'm going to challenge you is to be that man, to be that woman, to live in such a way that the people in your little corner of the world know about you. They've heard about your faith. They see your witness. And when they're in need, they look for you. There is a man, she said, in your kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy God's. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, he made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because of an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems that were found in Daniel, who the king named Belshazzar. Let Daniel be called, and he'll show you the interpretation. Daniel, what what do we know about Daniel? His reputation preceded him. (laughs) And by the way, so does yours. And so does mine. The way we live our lives is a testimony to what we believe is most important. And in Daniel's case, the tests that he had been through produced a testimony And so all throughout the kingdom, all these years later, they knew that this man served a God who gave answers when no one had answers. Oh, friend, we're living in a world that's filled with change and uncertainty. There are people probably in your home, but certainly in your neighborhood, in the class you attend, in the place you work, even in our church that are crying out for answers. May we be known as the men, the women that they can look to as Daniel was. So she looks to Daniel and the king calls out to Daniel. This man of character. Well, why did he have this testimony? Remember what took place in chapter one and verse eight? It says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. He purposed in his heart. Remember, we make choices and our choices make us. We make decisions and they define us. And so way back as a young man, he decided. He decided in a moment of private commitment to honor God. And now all these years later, God was still honoring him. His public platform came after this private profession. Now, we live in a society that is eat up with this idea of platform. Everybody wants a platform. Everybody is promoting themselves. And let me just tell you, sometimes it's my tribe It's people in the ministry that seem to be the worst at this. We're elevating ourselves so that others can see what we're doing. But I would remind you of something I was taught many years ago in ministry. We will never be more publicly than we've been privately. You'll never have a platform of great influence that makes a difference in your little corner of the world until first you make a decision, and usually a private decision, that whatever comes your way, you're going to be faithful to the Lord. Said another way, the great big doors of opportunity of God's blessings, they always swing on the tiny hinges of obedience. So those things we looked at earlier, those ways that we may be profaning the sacred, the ways we may be thumbing our nose at God, the way we may be being disobedient, don't look at your life and complain to God about why he's not blessing you when you're not doing the things he's already told you to do. We still need men and women to step up, to be faithful, to be godly, to be compassionate, to have integrity. In fact, I believe this verse in Second Chronicles is still true. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Just think about that. The eyes of God are looking for people like you, and he's ready to support you. He's got your back. He'll hold you up. He'll give you what you need. If you just will say, you can have whole all of me. I'm withholding nothing. I'm giving everything back to you. That's why D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, would say the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to Him. I wonder if today we would commit to be that man. We would commit to be that woman. I wonder how many of us would say, Oh God, by your grace and for your glory, I give you all of me. I'm withholding nothing. My yes is on the table. I surrender. I'll do whatever it is you want.
1: God, just use me for your glory. You've been listening to The Barnabas Effect with Pastor Paul Purvis, an outreach of Mission Hill Church. If you're looking for answers to difficult questions, or searching for a church home, you're invited to any of the three locations in Temple Terrace and Tampa. Details and directions at missionhill.org. The Barnabas Effect is here to provide listeners like you with biblical truth and spiritual encouragement but it can't be done without your financial support. Go to missionhill.org and click on the Give tab. Your financial support helps us reach those seeking truth about God and themselves. Thank you for giving at missionhill.org. And join us next Sunday at noon for The Barnabas Effect with Pastor Paul Purvis on Faith Talk AM 570 and 910.